Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for intersectional allies and social justice academics. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, social psychologist, tenured full professor, Appalachian clogger, and aspiring banjo player. I have a passion for moving beyond your average bias and diversity training toward actions founded in core values of vulnerability, transformation, and justice. Based on your request last year, I developed season two with a more specific dive into anti-racist pedagogy. Podcast guest scholars and I attempt to define, distinguish, deconstruct, and even defend anti-racist pedagogy while providing practical advice along the way. After this episode, visit www.drkimcase.com for free resources and to join my newsletter community. You can check out my course on white anti-racism in action, which includes modules on anti-racist pedagogy and over 30 more guest scholar interviews. There you will also find information on my group coaching program for social justice academics. Marissa M. Salazar is a race researcher and psychology doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan. Her work investigates how white college students construct their conceptualizations of white allyship and which factors may foster or limit their allyship development. Driven by her findings, she began creating workshops on white allyship and hosts these workshops for students, faculty, or staff at various universities across the United States. She also was one of five scholars recently accepted into the University of Michigan's Boucher Honor Society, which recognizes scholars who are committed to diversity work and excellence within their field. Marisa is dedicated to anti-racist education and recently worked in a curriculum development role where she incorporated anti-racist research into an introduction to psychology course. Thank you, Marissa Milan Salazar for joining us today. I'm so excited to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so jumping right in, what I usually ask people to do at first is give us a little context and tell us about your intersectional social location, whatever you'd like to share. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So firstly, I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I am a Latina, specifically Mexican. And if you want to get like super, super specific and know the most about me, I am specifically a Tejana from Texas, from South Texas. If you don't know what Tejana means, just look up Selena Quintanilla and that will tell you enough information. (laughs) But uh, yes, I'm a Latina from South Texas who grew up in an interesting class circumstance. I'll say that I was born into a working class family that is now 30 years later or almost 30 years later, middle class. So there was that interesting like slow class transition throughout my life. But yeah, those are at the very least my race, gender, class identities. Thank you for that. And um, I guess we wanted to start with just your perspective on this enigma. (laughs) I've been Mm -hmm. saying this phrase gets used a lot now, anti-racist pedagogy, but to to you, what does that even mean? And I was hoping you could tell us how it's relevant in terms of survey level courses, intro level courses, which is often a place people don't think about anti-racist pedagogy. Yeah, you are completely right about that. And For this conversation, I just really want to first say that I hope that this is a a good starting place and an invitation for further dialogue on implementing, obviously, anti-racist pedagogy. And yeah, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I've just noticed throughout the years as like both a student, right, and also in an instructor type role, right? right? So most recently, I was asked by the wonderful Dr. Liz Bovinger, who is an absolute joy and a longtime veteran professor for teaching intro to psych at the University of Michigan, approached me and essentially said, hey, you know, I had worked with her before as a graduate student instructor, and she approached me to say, uh, you know, I would love to hire you to collaborate with me to revamp Intro to Psych, to give it an anti-racist approach. And so that's what we attempted to do. So in this conversation, I really want it to be about what we saw when we attempted to do this, and with a general 
survey course and hopefully highlight some of those clarifications and challenges that we witness as well as the things that we learn from from that first go around. So that's the context that I'm, of course, coming in with. And in terms of like an anti-racist pedagogy, you know, I was thinking about this and I was like, I wanted to really talk with you, Kim, and of course, like the, the listeners about two problems specifically that I felt were the ones that upon reflection were the things that like screamed at me of like, these need to be talked about. And the first one being there's a huge difference between multicultural pedagogy and anti-racist pedagogy, which hopefully I can clarify in a second. And even when you're talking about race, what are the ways that we can do so more effectively? And you are completely right, as you said, that there's not a lot of people that think about anti-racist pedagogy with survey courses. And in this case, with like an intro to psych course, like if you're doing an anti-racist course that literally has race in the title, or it is you know, anti-racist, the course or whatever it is, all of the things that we talk about and all the things that you're going to talk about with everybody in in this entire series are are going to be relatively straightforward to implement and and perhaps improve upon. Perhaps not so much with a survey course or psychology course, but it still is important to take on that anti-racist pedagogy with all the courses that in that same way that we do and attempt to do so with multiculturalism, with equity practices, inclusive practices, because racism is ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. because racism really does affect everyone, every system and every field. So incorporating into your course, especially intro to psych, which at most universities is literally the most popular course for students to take, it could be that very crucial opportunity to get students that exposure that they wouldn't otherwise. And I will say it's a different approach, right? It is a different approach. I I have to admit that automatically, but hopefully in this conversation with my point of view, really being intro to psych, Mm -hmm. a survey course, a general course, hopefully there'll be a helpful perspective for educators in that same position. And that will be illuminated like throughout this conversation. Cause that really is the perspective I'm taking on. I didn't teach race the course, right? I taught intro to psych, which is a general survey course. Yeah, I love this because so often we it might be easy to fall into the trap of thinking that anti-racist pedagogy is only relevant to sociology courses or at the biggest stretch, diversity in quotes courses that are meeting some sort of uh, requirement or just elective that that mm. people might have um, or that it just falls in women's studies or ethnic studies programs or things like that. And this is really about infusing it as much, you know, as a philosophy and approach to teaching and pedagogy, but also what it means for the content, what it means for assessment, what it means for how you grade, right? There's all these yep. things. And so the more we can get people to think about the broader curriculum, which includes the students coming in, right? Lower level curriculum or, you know, um, your core. So can you give us some sense of what you see as potential typical approaches to maybe even sort of incorporating diversity content or inclusiveness in intro courses. Mm. And then we can talk a little bit after that about getting a little further along the anti-racist pedagogy lines. But what do you see typically happening? Yeah, so typically I will say like in a more multicultural approach that, which of course is a teaching approach where you are intentionally trying to incorporate different cultural perspectives into a course. Often in the classroom, it can look like uh, cross-cultural comparison or cross in, in our field of psychology, cross-cultural psychology is a whole field, right? And it's basically like, okay, this culture is perceiving this concept in this way. 
And this is how we perceive that same concept. And I think it could fall very easily into what we like to call in the literature, like a cultural safari where students are just going through the course and like looking at different cultures and saying, oh, how funny or how silly that other culture is and how they do things, or at, at perhaps best, how interesting and how different. And, but dangerously, it isn't talking about race, right? And sometimes there are, you know, educators who, who know this and say, you know, I'm going to cover culture. I'm not talking about race. Race is something different. But I think what's happened recently is there's been all of these pressures, external pressures and perhaps internal pressures for people who do already implement multiculturalism into their coursework or who are teaching multiculturalism or multicultural education. Um, there's this pressure, perhaps even internally for them to incorporate race and ethnicity into their classrooms. And they're still though using, because it's their training or it's because of the perspective, the framework that they're coming in with, a multicultural lens and hence treating race like culture. Mm -hmm. And those are very different concepts. So the treatment, and this is a real, a real example that I've heard of kind of the dangers of applying a cultural framework to in that, to analyze race and racial issues. So this is a real conversation that I had of somebody saying, well, you know, like Catholics and Protestants uh, where I grew up had a lot of conflict and they just eventually broke bread and learned to accept each other's differences. And they emphasize similarities between each other and realize, oh, we have all the same values really at the end of the day. And that's what we need. We just need to be a little nicer to each other. And in other words, it's on you people of color and white people to just try to get along a little harder. Right. And there's many problems with that analogy and that straight comparison, but perhaps like the most simple problem with that answer is that race isn't just an interpersonal problem. And that's right. where anti-racism will come in and inherently teach that it's not an interpersonal problem, that it is a systemic issue and that there's many levels to racism that affect us. And yeah, that that's that's one of the, I guess, parts of multiculturalism that we could see. But there are also other things that multiculturalism does offer um, that I think a lot of people more often use and that are, for instance, having this idea of like, I want to do and pursue anti-racist pedagogy. Perhaps you're not just doing cross-cultural comparisons, but I, I do want to state, you know, I do think that we are really comfortable with multiculturalism as a concept. Mm -hmm. And in this country, we went from, you know, segregation to assimilation or the melting pot analogy to then multiculturalism or cultural pluralism. And then there's been this recent shift then to anti-racist pedagogy or trying to incorporate anti-racist pedagogy. And in liberal circles or in education circles, you know, if you talk about segregation and assimilation, those are bad words and rightfully so. Right. But we don't really criticize too much multiculturalism. And it's really seen as a gold standard and mm -hmm. even a synonym for anti-racist pedagogy. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. And yeah. It, yeah. That could be really dangerous because I think that, you know, I thought of it in dialogue with a scholar from the late 80s, Troina. I'm not sure if I'm saying that name correctly. It's spelled T-R-O-Y-N-A. But I put it in dialogue with that, uh, with, with what he was writing back in the late 80s of saying, well, you know, multiculturalism to him, multiculturalism and anti-racist pedagogies were actually irreconcilable concepts to mm. him, which is really interesting. And I think would shake a lot of educators because that isn't the way that we think about it. 
And instead to him, multiculturalism was actually more so a synonym, not of anti-racist pedagogy, but actually assimilation, mm. which is very, you know, that does shake someone to hear. And I'm going to go and uh, go ahead and say that I, at, at least at this point in my life, don't agree that multiculturalism, you know, is this awful thing and we should throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. But I do think it's important to hear Troina's perspective on this and then have that be a reflective piece for us to understand why multiculturalism really isn't enough or mm -hmm. certainly isn't anti-racist pedagogy at the very least. And the point that he was really making is that assimilation is of course ignoring culture and race, right? We're all just going to assimilate to uh, one you know, culture, which is white culture. Mm -hmm. And then multiculturalism says, no, 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 we are going to embrace culture and cultural differences, but we're still going to ignore race, right? We might incorporate race, but we're not going to talk about power, which to Troina mm -hmm. is essentially saying, we're not going to talk about race. So from that perspective of power and race, which inherently involves power, assimilation and multiculturalism were synonyms to him, which is interesting. And again, you know, I do think that there are points of overlap. So that I do want to talk about those and what multiculturalism can offer, but I thought that would be a really important clarification to start with because it's not everyone saying that, hey, multiculturalism is different from assimilation and is more closely related to anti-racist education. So it really does shake that perspective a bit. Then I do see a lot of cross-cultural comparison that is a thing, but more often, especially nowadays, it would be, and what multiculturalism does a great job at, is that it introduces us to this idea of like, hey, uh, let's try to step away from Eurocentrism. And mm -hmm. hey, let's try to acknowledge that we're using Western values and Western scholarship. And let's take a look at our curriculum and see that, hey, it's not representing XYZ culture. And we really do need to represent XYZ culture because we need it to reflect our multicultural society. And I've even seen Many educators say, especially in recent years, we don't have enough people of color representation in our curriculum. So we need to start incorporating that type of scholarship or those types of scholars in our curriculum as well. So what multiculturalism to me offers really well is representation okay. and in our curriculum, as well as a, a possibility for plurality in terms of the perspectives that we're taking on. So I think that is super important, but I still think that it differs from anti-racism and an anti-racist pedagogy because it still isn't explicitly incorporating that connection to systemic racism. I have a question for you about multiculturalism. Yeah. One of the things I have seen it result in, mm. well, it's two things, I guess, but they go together hand in hand really well. If you're describing so, oh, well, here's, you know, here's what it, here's what red means to Chinese culture, right? You're, what the tradition is for children leave the family home or whatever it is for comparison cross-culturally. It, it promotes, I think it can really easily devolve into stereotypes too and slash essentialism because we're giving people the, the average, right? Of like, here's what the average person from this culture might believe based on this mm -hmm. culture. But then the heterogeneity within that culture is like completely gone. And there, there certainly is no complexity of that conversation, right? And the, the student in the classroom, for the most part, and I think there are some students that would see that and say, but that doesn't fit me and I'm from that group right? Mm -hmm. Or have some sort of critical consciousness about it. But for the most part, the people in that classroom are going to be like, oh, that's how all those people are. Great. Got it. Check that box. Yes. People could not see me, but I was just like clapping <laughs> over here because I completely agree with that entirely. And actually, um, you know, if you do read 
psychology textbooks or whatever, um, oftentimes they, if they do include race or culture in the, um, in the side box. Yes. In the side, <laughs> like a little paragraph that they, or a little dialogue box that they clearly have just added in this most recent edition. Um, you'll see that either cultural comparison, like you were talking about, or sometimes even racial disparities and statistics of listing, Hey, the statistics of disproportionately high obesity and diabetes rates in Latinx and black and indigenous communities or huh. disproportionately substance low. abuse. It's always yeah, substance, substance abuse. abuse. <laughs> um, even perhaps they might mention high incarceration rates for mm -hmm. black men. And I think that that is a great starting place. I mean, we can say something about, you know, uh, different cultures and the cultural safari aspect, but let's, let's assume that the, the instructor is very responsible and they're just, you know, sharing these statistics or these differences in perspective. And I think it's a great starting place, but it, I, I think it's very dangerous to just include it alone for exactly what you said, that it can very much so lead to this racial essentialism, right? Uh, not only is it an afterthought, clearly, and it's read that way by at least, at least us, right? Um, but it also leads to that, well, there's something wrong about being that race. And mm -hmm. that race is causing the problems. It's the fault of the race. And it's just what that race suffers from because it is that race. As we can see from these rates that they're showing, uh, oftentimes it just, it's one sentence with a, uh, you know, table or a just a table, no sentences, yeah. no <laughs> sentences. Honestly. Yeah. It's just like refer to this figure, you kind of figure it out and that's it. And I also think that it does lead to that racial essentialism. And also ironically, what in psychology is a huge concept, the fundamental attribution error, which is a huge concept in psychology that we teach in intro to psych of Yes, there are all these like situational and uh, systemic factors, but we hone in on the individual and blame the individual for those consequences. And I think exactly as you said, for white students and for students of color, they see these racial disparities, let's say disproportionately high obesity rates and conclude they must love to really eat unhealthy foods. And that's why their obesity rates are so high because they can't control themselves like we can, right? What's not talked about, uh, right? We just hone in on the choices that they're making as a race. And what's not talked about are those contextual factors. What's not talked about uh, is like, hey, this community disproportionately also lives in a food desert where they don't have access to fresh foods. They don't have access to affordable fresh foods. They instead have access to really cheap, highly processed, highly addictive, sugary foods, or they live in a food swamp, which is by the way, a term I just recently learned in the past year. And I was like, this is exactly what I grew up with a food swamp, which is instead this really high density of fast food. That's all that's around. All your options are just fast food, very high caloric foods. And we're not talking about those factors, even though the research supports that if you live in either of those circumstances, you are at a much higher risk for obesity. But no, instead we just list these racial disparities which can lead those students to thinking, well, it's just the race and the things that they're doing as a race and the choices that they're making as a race. So right? I wanna say the phrase deficit model because mm. it just, all of this is promoting that, right? So yes. multiculturalism can promote it including more information about disparities, racial disparities. So that's a little bit further down the lane, maybe, but saying like, okay, well, we want to acknowledge that not everybody has the same experience. So when these textbooks or in these readings, or maybe my lecture notes, I'm going to include some information about percentages and raise some awareness about the disparities. 
But if you don't have a conversation about systems and context and social location and how it affects lived experience and power differences among groups and who gets to decide who lives where and what access they have to what, (laughs) right, then you can't really have a critique of how social forces are at work in people's individual lives, right? Yes, exactly. And also, you know, I think that it produces not only that deficit thinking, which I I will definitely talk about more, especially how it affects students of color and instructors of color, because that was a big thing that I I went through uh, internally as I was attempting to incorporate race research. I think also in terms of the solutions that it produces in, in students' minds is like, well, you know, it's their culture, it's how they are as a race and produces a paternalism and a, what we call like a white savior complex in the literature of like, we, people of color, they just need our help. You know, they need our saving. All oh, these poor people of color, they're struggling because again, to use the same example, they just don't know what to eat. You know, they just, they're eating all these unhealthy foods and we should tell them like, hey, by the way, that's not healthy for you. Which by the way, you know, growing up in a, a food swamp, literally, going into more white spaces, that was, oh my gosh, the amount of times that I heard, like, you know, that's not healthy for you, right? Or, you know, stepping in already with, it's clearly something that I need to correct, right? And instead of what are some changes that we need to make on a systemic level, right? For instance, in urban planning. Mm-hmm. And that just isn't happening. So I I also want to talk about too, like that's that's one factor, it's like the solutions and the deficit thinking. But another super important part is the effects on students of color and instructors of color, because like I said before, this is something that I really felt when I was trying to incorporate anti-racist pedagogy. Really, it was like the sense of almost defeat and a bit of hopelessness because every single week, you know, I was trying not to just do cross-cultural comparisons. I was like, I want this to be about race. And that meant incorporating a lot of racial disparities and looking at sort of references and trying to to do this in the way that others had done, it was like just the racial disparities. And basically all I was doing was adding racial disparities. And that would leave me with a sense of like, okay, here we go again, teaching white students how deficit we are. Mm -hmm. And what I realized in addition to, obviously it needs to include like a systems analysis. It needs to be put in its socio-historical and socio-political context. That's super important so that we're not just blaming the race and leading to racial essentialism. But also what I realized is I need to start incorporating some representation of strengths-based research and research on the resilience of people of color. Because where is that representative research on, for instance, like Latino families and multi-generational uh, households and the po- those positive outcomes on longevity? Where is the research on positive Black parenting or Black resilience? And all of those, that research exists because yeah. I'm citing research that I've read, but it just wasn't being incorporated into the curriculum. And this is more work for you because it... Mm isn't typically incorporated into graduate training. And I'm speaking beyond our own discipline, Um, Mm. unless you're in an ethnic studies doctoral program, for example, or, you know, one that's really known for doing that specifically, like it's not a typical experience. So you're having to go find all of it. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they do exist, right. Mm -hmm. As you're saying. And I wanted to add on another example to what you're saying about how 
just including percentages can um, support deficit model and also the white savior idea. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about how to help people like, oh, you just help them eat better. Yes. Um, I was thinking, well, we just need to explain how do you respond when you get pulled over by the police and you'll be fine. Right. So that narrative of, well, here's how you do it. You just act respectful and you say, yes, sir, right. no, sir. And then nothing that bad will happen to you. And just listen to how we do it. And it mm-hmm. reminds me of that cartoon that I always use where it's a brick wall with the circle cut out. And there's a circle on one side being like, just do what I did. Oh, yes. <laughs> on I the other exactly side, they're like these other shapes. They're like, they're like, well, that is not going to work for us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but just sort of the lack of perspective on how power and systemic racism are so pervasive that your, you know, deficit model thinking and how to remove the deficit from those individuals isn't going to change it. It very much reminds me that because everything that you said, it's like, ah, it sounds like multiculturalism, right? It's like, it's, we're sticking at that interpersonal level. And the solutions are that we need to respect each other and we need to have more understanding, but that's not what we're dealing with here, right? It's, we're dealing with a systemic problem with a multiple sociological level or uh, problem and issue, and that's lost. And I just want to also say, you know, like racial disparities need to be included because they do show the real effects of racism right there before your eyes. But as we've been talking about, they need to be framed within the situational factors and systemic racism so that we can have a real sense of what the actual causes are and hence can form better ideas about race solutions. Mm -hmm. And moreover, we need to remember to incorporate obviously like strengths-based research and research on the resilience of people of color, especially for students of color who are really going to need to hear that. Like I was doing this type of work of, you know, going out on my own, trying to find this research because it was for me. It was literally for me as an instructor of color who's teaching at a predominantly white institution with a majority white student um, body and saying like, I need this for myself to find this research because I need to hear it. And then I was so surprised when actually one of my students came up to me and said, oh my gosh, thank you so much for incorporating like positive research on people of color and specifically on Latinos and on Mexican Americans, which I did a different week. Um, Thank you so much for including that because I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. And that was such a change. And I was so excited to show my parents who always want to know what I'm learning. And they were excited too, to actually see a positive, more strengths-based research representing our race, our Latino race. Right. So it was very much that moment of like, I originally did this just for me, but clearly I'm not just doing it for me. Clearly this is important for our students of color. I was going to ask you about advice for instructors, but do you want to maybe just talk about advice for instructors of color who are either new or not new to incorporating more anti-racist pedagogy? It's a really hard one because, you know, again, going to a predominantly like white institution, a lot of the people that I am around are also white, including the instructors. And it could be a very lonely and isolating feeling of being added just having a different dynamic fundamentally with the material as well as with students yes I'm the instructor and I have power in that regard but also my students are majority white and I've actually been in classrooms that I was the only person of color in that classroom and I was the instructor as well talking about race and it's a very strange dynamic that can be very overwhelming. And I don't have all of the answers and I don't have necessarily like advice other than there are other people who are also doing this work and 
they now more than ever because anti-racist pedagogy is something that like more and more people are talking about and i've been so surprised to see other communities forming and having these conversations so i don't necessarily have more advice than just to find as much as you can other instructors of color who are doing this so you can go and vent to them and say i really i really feel like i am just going on and on every week about the you know deficit thinking of people of color and producing racial essentialism, what can I do? Is there any research on this community? Or is there any research on this community? And be there for each other in that way. And I feel like that's not something that immediately would become apparent to white instructors because they're reading it as, oh, okay, these are the racial disparities, okay, okay. Instead of as a person of color reading it, you're like, oh, that's me, you know, and that triggers something else entirely. So that could be really helpful. And honestly, that's the only thing I've been able to find. <laughs> and the thing that's worked is talking to other instructors mm -hmm. of color and us collectively sharing our struggles and getting to that next step of how to resolve it. And that's really it at this point. Well, it sounds like for you, not just for your pedagogy, but for you as a person, yeah. finding the strength-based research you wanted to bring into your course was also a buffer for you mm -hmm. in some way. That is so true. And it's, it's a different experience. It's almost like uh, wearing your heart out on your sleeve when you're teaching race, when that's for me, one of the most important identities, it's obviously the most visible identity as well. And yeah, I think you're completely right. It's like, it was very much a buffer for me as well to incorporate this strengths-based research. And I, I think if anything, that should be something that in other instructors of color also lead in with of, I'm gonna make a goal to actually try to incorporate some strengths-based research. I think that should be a goal for us. Mm -hmm. It should be a goal for white instructors as well for the racial essentialism, the things that we talked about before, but it plays that extra role for us as instructors of color. Yeah, and when I'm thinking about the, the, the learner in the classroom, so there's students of color who I think we've talked about, you know, there's maybe obvious benefits to having strength-based perspectives in your course right. that speak to their own families and backgrounds. And even if they're not exactly from the same group, even reading about strength-based about another um, group of color or community of color might be helpful. Right. Yeah. Um, but also there's white students in the room that need to not leave with just thinking all these individuals need to get it together and be more like us and they'll be fine. Yes. Right. So breaking down those myths and assumptions will automatically, well, not automatically happen, but more likely happen yes. <laughs> if given something to read. That's about, you know, um, a positive view on um, groups that are constantly being told to do it differently. <laughs> right. We place white as the norm, not only for, Hey, uh, they are the statistic to compare to, but also essentially for humanity, right? Yeah. They're the norm for how to live your life as a human being. They're the standard, how they're doing it. Anything that deviates from that is a problem. And yeah. we just need to get ourselves to live the way that white people are living and the way they see well-being, the way that they see a happy life, a fulfilled life. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? right. And, and just as in a grad school experience, oh my gosh, like the conversations that me and my us like fellow student grad students of color have had and also um people from more working class backgrounds as well of like we value family yeah very very heavily that is number one and that can come at uh you know that can cause a lot of tension between mm -hmm. us and the academic values of like no career first no individualism right. and there are some things that we can and i think it just needs to be said that there are things that white people can learn from people of color. And that's essentially what is missing, I think, from even multiculturalism in some ways, because there's not that discussion explicitly about race and power. 
of what can we learn from people of color? Yeah, that makes me think that part of anti-racist pedagogy is creating open pathways and welcoming that students of color and maybe our colleagues of color, <laughs> scholars <laughs> of color that we read and learn about their perspectives, about strengths, perspectives and yes. um, uh, intersections and all the things that we want to ha- leave open pathways for them to change us and change our institutions. That is so and true. That is not a typical higher education um, approach. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I would and say. I think it's a perfect opportunity because I don't know if this happened uh, or you heard a lot about this in, in your institution, but for, for us during this pandemic, uh, it's been become a common practice to have constant feedback and to be very flexible and to incorporate that feedback as you're going through a course, which usually wasn't the case. It's usually like you're going to get evaluations from students at the end of the course, and you can decide whether or not you're going to change it for the next course or not, which is going to be fundamentally a different classroom, by the way. And I think I've learned a lot from that experience and using it in an anti-racist pedagogy of constant feedback you know, uh, the, to the instructor from the student, from the, yes, exactly. From, from the instruct or given by the instructor to students to learn from them and learn even what, where they're at with this and how they're processing it on a regular basis. I mean, I've had some fellow instructors, which I think if I were to do over an anti-racist pedagogy intro to psych, you know, with the capital A anti-racist, I would definitely incorporate regular feedback or perhaps exit tickets as we call it. Right. Of, you know, seeing how students are processing it and also learning from students of color specifically, hey, you know, this doesn't feel like a classroom for me. You know, it feels like you're going over a lot of diversity 101, race 101, and I'm not at that place. So how are we going to, as instructors, handle a circumstance like that? You know, is it a case where we, from the beginning, get a sense of where everyone's at and likely everybody's going to be on a spectrum of critical reflection on race and and development. And how are we going to navigate that? Are we going to, you know, say, hey, why don't people who feel like they don't know anything, let's have a conversation over here. People who feel like they know a little bit, but perhaps that's not part of their life, y'all have a conversation. People who really know this are activists, y'all go have a conversation about the same topic and see what we come away with, right? Being more creative and more intentional in that way, I think, will also help. And I, I honestly feel like that was a lesson learned of that constant feedback and evaluation from the pandemic, mm-hmm. right? And where we had to be on our feet, where we literally had to go with the flow, you know? <laughs> so we're trained for it, believe it or we'll not. See. We'll see. We'll <laughs> see if the overall average pedagogical approach has moved now because of some things that mm. started to happen because they had to happen, right? right? Like will instructors and this is just pedagogically in general is what I'm yeah, saying. Like exactly. other things that they will find like, oh, I found that valuable. I need to, and now I want to incorporate that moving forward and, and not necessarily go back to exactly before, you know, the same approaches as before, but I was, wow. You just touched on one of the most difficult, one of the most difficult things about doing any sort of, even if it's inclusive teaching practices or anti-racist pedagogy or, you know, bringing gender issues into the curriculum, whatever it is everyone's at such a different place mm-hmm. when they walk in and, and uh, it's not even bimodal. It's just a continuum of yes. what <laughs> to, I do this every day and this is going to be my career. Right. And so, yes. Yeah. If we can start to get some ideas down for people about, I mean, we don't have to do it here. I just mean, this is a challenge that's going to be ongoing. Right. Um, oh, definitely. Yeah. 
It's like if you taught a math class and people came in with never have taken a math class and then there were like calculus geniuses in the class and that doesn't happen for a math instructor, right? You come in at a certain place based on your entrance exam, right? Can you imagine having like in one 15 week or, you know, if you're on quarters, it wouldn't be that, but to figure out how to help all of those people Mm -hmm. move along a path or learn something in different starting places. Yeah. So oh my gosh, what and the emotions in the classroom we haven't even gotten into, nope. but we can save that for another time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely so much to say about emotions and I've been get, getting recently into that literature. I recommend pedagogy of discomfort and critical hope. Go read about all of that if you're interested in emotions in the classroom, but oh my gosh. Yeah. Just the, the comparison that you just made the analogy of like, we would never expect a math instructor to literally take everyone across the spectrum and teach them about this anybody topic. who walks in. Yeah. Yes. That is such a good comparison. And I think it's not talked about enough. And I think ironically, this may be controversial to state, but I think ironically, we'd like to cater to white students, right? Mm-hmm. We're like, they're the ones that need these classes. Mm-hmm. And this is me included because I study white allyship. I do workshops on white allyship that are catered literally to white people. Um, of like, I'm going to just break it down for them. And a lot of them in the college classroom, especially when my particular circumstance of a survey course, intro to psych, that is being taken by these students who are coming from predominantly white uh, hometowns. And this is their first semester or so. There's a big focus on white students. Like we're taking the students oftentimes in the survey course of these students who have come from these white backgrounds and are now here in your classroom. And so we're saying, we have to start from, you know, block one and explain what race is. Whereas you have other students of color, not all of them, but some who, because of the fact that they're people of color, have had to think about these things for a very long time, you know? So it is something that is really a challenge. And I think it helps to just explicitly state that this is a challenge we have to start thinking about, you know? I don't think we talk about it very much. Okay, I feel like there's a, I'm agreeing with you. And I feel like there's a paradox because Mm. when, I hear universities and institutions, and when I do consultations or workshops and or talk to other faculty developers, I feel like there's a pretty common thought process, which is we tell faculty that they need to do more for diversity, internationalization, decolonizing, um, inclusive teaching practices, get it more into curriculum, maybe in certain courses, but maybe for institutions that are doing a little better, they want it infused, right? Mm-hmm. And they'll talk about it that way. But it's in direct conversation with the reason why we need to do that as institutions is because there's such a more diverse student population and we need to be retaining, attracting and retaining and doing a good job. I mean, these aren't bad goals, but um, do a good job of making a classroom, a space where students of color don't feel like, like they came here and then they're not represented, for example, and they're they're not learning anything about people of color and, Mm -hmm. or about things that are relevant to their own backgrounds and lived experiences, right? So culturally responsive pedagogy, right? Like student engagement, being able to bring in their own perspectives, like those kinds of conversations, but they're, it's almost always at the end of the day to say, because we have more students of color than ever before and first-generation students, they might say that, or they might Mm -hmm. say low income, but very rarely that they actually include income. What about all the students who come from a background of whiteness, why is this not relevant to the conversation when we're saying that institutions need to do this better? Right. And then the paradox happens. Then when we get to the classroom level, what you just said is the plan for the pedagogy is almost exclusively about white students who mostly haven't had these conversations. Some have, 
Um, but yeah, so you have to start at the basic level, right? And so the institution, the institution level dialogue about it is about students of color and being responsive to them. And then the classroom level is not always, right? Nothing's hundred percent, but like an average is how do I teach white students about this, which also isn't bad, right? but then what we see happening is students of color feeling like they have to start, you know, they have to like suffer through white students learning this yet again, or they have to teach them and they have to share their experiences. And then, um, you know, if done really badly, but being asked to share hurtful experiences in in service of white students in the classroom. Right. So I just, it's an interesting different level of like the institutional levels focusing on one group and why justifying why these things need to happen. But then at the classroom level, it's sort of focused on another group. So mm. all of the students need this, but not in the same exact ways, right? I exactly. Mean, and what so, I take away from that ironically is that when I hear institutions say that argument of like, well, we live in a more multicultural society, hence, you know, we need to uh, have more students of color and, you know, have more inclusive practices for students of color. Ironically, what I also hear in that is we need to prepare our white students to interact with people of color because that's not what, what they grew up with in their hometown, which is maybe uh, predominantly white. They're going to potentially work with people of color. And now they I have mean, to, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it's like, you know, I almost hear in that too of like, it's still serving people or still serving white students at the end of the day of just like, we need these people of color because we need to train our white people to know how to be culturally competent or mm. uh, at best anti-racist. And then when we get to the classroom, that becomes very apparent. But at the same time, these are still important things. We still, it's just different strategies, right? It's just that people of color as, and and helping people of color in their racial consciousness development, that is just being ignored. It's not that focusing on white people is not important because it's the opposite. It's incredibly important. We can't have anti-racism, which is why we do the work that we do, by the way. Uh, We need white people to... Uh, obviously engage in anti-racism because they hold the power and also because otherwise it would fall all onto people of color themselves. So we need this, right? We need for there to be classes where it's okay if you don't know anything and you have to work through it in a whole class period or a whole class semester. Um, but it seems like it's what's being ignored is people of color's racial consciousness development in the mm-hmm. classroom, right? It's like, great, we have one strategy on the lockdown. Yes, we need to improve it. Um, but we really don't talk a lot about people of color in the classroom and their own racial consciousness development in the classroom and how we're catering to it and what strategies we're doing for mm-hmm. that. And I think strengths-based research and, and clarifying the de- deficit thinking that can happen is making that very obvious. Okay, I love it. I love it. We've got lots of advice here. Is there anything you want to add in terms of advice for instructors, any kind of instructor? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, so I think we've talked obviously about a lot of things. And I think just one of the things I'll say is to be intentional about what you want your students to take away, right? If, if you're teaching, again, anti-racism, the course, all these things you're just going to implement pretty directly. But if you're doing a survey course, just as you have all your other learning outcomes, develop one for anti-racism and what do you want your students to take away? And I think it's going to be a lot easier for you to work backwards from that. Maybe you directly want students to be able to engage in critical analysis on race. Okay. That makes your job a lot easier of what you need to incorporate week by week. Do you want specifically for students to take away from your class, how to dismantle these structures as a primary learning outcome? That's going to look like a very different class. So I think being intentional from the get-go of 
what do you want students to take away from your course if you're employing an anti-racist pedagogy is going to be step number one. And of course, we've talked about so many things. So just to kind of wrap all those things up, incorporate systemic racism and socio-political, socio-historical context, which that just means the historical context, the political factors, the social factors, and be explicit about the discussion of whiteness and racial locations and positionality. And finally, empower your students, especially your students of color, to not only take action, but also to step away from that deficit thinking and through strengths-based research and showing research on the resilience of people of color. It's been so great. Yes. I really appreciate it. I mean, I think there's been so many nuggets, big ones too, <laughs> that we can um, learn from here. So I appreciate you being here today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your time and your perspective on all of this and um, the experience you've already had as an instructor. I know we're going to hear a lot more from you. We'll be reading all your books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Enough, y'all. If you're hungry for more, please visit drkimcase.com to sign up for my newsletter, explore free resources, and check out my group coaching program for social justice academics. You can also learn about my online course on white anti-racism in action with over 30 podcast episodes like this one. Until we meet again, stay scrappy for truth and justice.